Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe that uh, two days from now it'll be Christmas. December sure has flown by, but then again, the older I get, time flies by a lot faster than I would like for it to. But here we are um, discussing uh, John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, how much more is there possibly left to talk about involving this man? Well, I will tell you all this right now. I've got it uh, set out to where um, we will still continue to talk about Marion, but I've got it down uh, to a more um, condensed version of um, focusing on what's um, important and necessary And yes, while some of the battles that we have discussed from previous podcasts are not, you know, discussed in, say, everyday textbooks or in everyday documentaries, the reason for some of those uh, smaller skirmishes that were discussed obviously was to um, show that uh, fighting, especially in South Carolina, did not always have to revolve around uh, a traditional um, band of uh, continental regulars. However, In order for the war to be successful in South Carolina to where patriots will prevail, there does have to be a mixture of both militiamen and regulars fighting. So in other words, they're going to have to rely on one another uh, for information, but they're also going to have to rely on one another for how to go about uh, best uh, navigating uh, the terrain, which is something that we will talk about in this podcast but we're also going to talk about some other key battles that um, that Marion was involved in, but battles that um, really did um, mark a uh, major significance in the war itself, uh, for uh, most notably not only in South Carolina but also in North Carolina. Since by this time in seventeen going into seventeen eighty one. The greater uh, focus is on the Carolinas as a whole, not just South Carolina, but North Carolina. And yes, North Car- both Carolina states, you know, border one another. But the significance of being able to navigate freely, going in a north-south direction, it's not just navigating freely in those directions, but how both sides could recruit. Uh, men into their uh, camps to fight to fight one another, not just fight one another, but fight against one another. So our uh, leadoff bonus question for tonight is going to be the following: Would Francis Marion go about establishing a symbiotic relationship with Nathaniel Green in the same manner as he did amongst the Snow Island community? Well, it's an obvious answer right there. Yes. Green and Marion each requested favors upon one another, but by doing so without going behind each other's backs. In other words, okay, Francis Marion asked Nathaniel Green for a favor. It's not like Marion would have just sat back and said, okay, well, I'll let um, Nathaniel Green do all the work and um, I'll, I'll do nothing in return. I'll just keep asking for favors, but, um, but won't do anything back. It, it, it won't return anything. No. In other words, neither one of these men uh, took advantage of one another, which was a good thing because if that happens, then how can there be a any kind of symbiotic relationship or let alone a working relationship in general? Now, as for um, 
where Nathaniel Green is camping right now by late uh, December of seven or by December of 1780. He is um, his um, forces are camping uh, around uh, the South Carolina, just below the South Carolina border, around the PD River. But one um, one thing that I did find uh, very um, imperative as to resources that uh, Nathaniel Green wanted more than anything. Before that, uh, we get to that resource uh, question, what did Green himself want intelligence-wise from Marion? That is, British troop movement, the presence of reinforcements coming into North Carolina. You know, it's one thing if the British have been defeated, but it's also another question of, okay, are they bringing in reinforcements to um, resupply or rebolster their defenses? Because Nathaniel Green himself has already split up his army. Green wants Marion to harass the enemy like he's already doing with his uh, irregular style fighting, what we call guerrilla warfare. But what? But most importantly, at this time, Green himself has sent 600 men under Daniel Morgan's command west of the Catawba River near the British post at 96. So as for the resource question, um, what was the one resource that Nathaniel Green wanted most? I'll give you a hint. It's uh, transportation related. But then again, transportation is very limited in South Carolina. But if you really want to know the answer, I'll give it to you. It is horses. For starters, horses, or let alone mounted forces, were essential in covering open distances throughout the Carolinas. Think about it. You know, the terrain in the, Carol in the, in the Carolinas, north and south, is much different than the terrain in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, or uh, Monmouth, New Jersey. Not to say that traveling by horse in New Jersey and New York is a, is a bad thing. It's not. But given the terrain in South Carolina, considering how many swamps, um, rivers, uh, how many um, forests there are, well, not just forests, but uh, wooded outlets, we have to remember there are... There, it's just a whole different landscape, and because it's a different landscape, the, the ability to navigate is going to present a challenge onto itself, especially navigating the terrain. But as for the importance, another factor behind the importance of horses has to do with um, has to do with uh, roads being um, of insignificant importance. Think about it. When you have rainy weather, you don't have, back in the 18th century, the, the roads that existed then were dirt roads. Sure, you could still find plenty of dirt roads here, but we didn't have modern-day asphalt roads in the 18th century. So when the roads... When the weather became very rainy, the roads are useless. And then basically the roads are turned into mud. 
And let me ask you all this. Are bridges available? No. Very few bridges are around. Bridges are scarce. And when rivers flooded, they become useless as well. But even if a river floods, what can a horse do that people could not do in flooded waters? A horse can navigate better through tough terrains, which will allow their riders to have easier crossing or let alone uh, passage entry or exit getting from point A to point B. So without a horse, I almost hate to say this, but this is true. Without the horse, one's really up a creek. If a man doesn't have a horse, then it could be fair to say that he that he's missing part of his livelihood uh, because not everybody has access to horses. But having a horse is just an essential form of um, traveling when roads no longer become available because of weather and when rivers are flooded. What can you turn to if you have it? A horse. Marion's forces heavily relied on horses, and there's another reason why. You know, it's we all would like to think, oh, didn't these soldiers have plenty of ammunition on them? No. Ammunition is something that did, was not always available. Um, it's not like Marion could go to the nearest... Um, he couldn't go to the nearest um, military depot store and, and say, hey, I need um, X number of, um, of uh, bullets... Um, to put for my uh, men so that they can put them into their um, rifles or muskets. We don't have that kind of um, sophistication at that time. So by having, um, this is where cavalry uh, comes into play. Given that Marion's forces heavily relied, given that Marion's forces heavily relied on horses when ammunition was low, the best way to get the ammunition was taking it from those whom were killed or defeated. So, okay, Marion, you know, the mastermind behind irregular warfare fighting. Okay, if they've shot three or five British um, soldiers out of a group of 20 and five of them die, well, shoot, right there you've got some ammunition that you can secure, but it's not going to be enough for everyone else. So... Because of the ammunition shortages, Marion converted many infantrymen into cavalry soldiers, providing them with sabers made from um, local blacksmith shops. Without a horse, one couldn't be labeled a cavalryman. So this is a great way where uh, Francis Marion is making the best out of a um, out of a, out of a shortage situation where he knows that. Okay, there are plenty of um, infantrymen, but not enough ammunition for them to get the job done. But how can they get their job done? We can uh, convert them from being infantrymen into cavalry soldiers where they will have easier access and getting around from point A to point B, uh, but also still be considered as part of the uh, Continental Army. But... On another hand, by being a cavalry soldier, these men can still retain infantry um, experience, 
but their statuses will already be enhanced by moving up from infantrymen to cavalry. Now, what's important about uh, the beginning of January 1781? And as I mentioned from earlier, um, we're going to be focusing a great deal on um, the beginnings to midway of 1781 with the uh, campaign now really intensifying in both uh, North and South Carolina. But in early January of 1781, Nathaniel Green grants one of Marion's wishes being sent an entire unit of Continentals, mixed cavalry and an infantry legion of 250 strong, which would be led by Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee, who is otherwise known as Light Horse Harry. Now, uh, I should point out that uh, Harry Lee did uh, see action in New Jersey and in other uh, battles in the Northern uh, Campaign, and I might as well point out that Harry Lee would become the father of a future um, prominent Virginian named Robert E. Lee. So there you have it with the, uh, with the Lee family of uh, Virginia. Next uh, question here is this. Uh, despite Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee coming from an aristocratic family, or an aristocratic Virginia family, rather, I should say, would he and Francis Marion share much in common? Yes. You know, and that's a good thing, considering that, okay, you know, Francis Marion came from humble beginnings, and we, he probably would be described or labeled as a typical middle-class family, whereas um, Harry, Harry Lee, being from an aristocratic family, but the bottom line is both men share a lot in common. They relied heavily on speed and agility for success. Both men firmly believed in discipline and looked after the well-being of the men serving below them. Now, on January 22nd of 1781, Lee and Marion began planning their first operation together, being an attack on British-held Georgetown, which Marion himself had wanted to achieve for some time. So, why is Georgetown so vital? Well, it's a place, Georgetown is the place where a valued commodity in salt was manufactured, including rice production to the north. But Georgetown was basically a very vital transportation hub connecting areas below and above the Santee River. You know, when I think of South Carolina at this time in terms of um, transportation hub, Charleston always comes to my mind, but we must remember, too, that there was also another city north of Charleston around present-day Myrtle Beach and being a Georgetown that was a big um, transportation hub. Now, let me ask you this. Did this attack go through? Uh, believe it or not, it, did, it didn't. Weather, unfortunately, did not um, play out. The weather didn't play out right. And the weather conditions basically were not suited for a plan to carry out. But the operation itself did prove that militia and regulars could work together. So even if something doesn't go through, you still hope that um, people can be brought together if it's all for the right reasons, as it was in this uh, particular case. Our next bonus question is the following. 
what happened on January 17th of 1781 that became significant for Patriot forces fighting the Southern campaign? Well, the answer is the following. Uh, the British forces led by Brigadier General Daniel Morgan defeated British forces under Colonel Banastray Tarleton, and this battle marked the turning point in Americans regaining South Carolina from British hands. Morgan, believe it or not, had nearly 2,000 men comprised of Continental Militia forces versus Tarleton's forces of nearly 1,200. Why was this, I mean, why was this battle so significant despite the fact that um, it marked a turning point for us in regaining South Carolina from British control, but what was unique about it from a military standpoint? Daniel Morgan pulled off a rare military um, feat, and I had never heard of the term until um, I had read the book a few years ago, as well as uh, rereading uh, what was uh, necessary for this uh, podcast episode. It's called a double envelopment. Envelopment. A double envelopment is where forces from both angles, left and right, or just forces in general, in this case, attacked. Tarleton's right and left flanks, the flanks being the sides at the same time. Usually when one side attacks the other's flank, it's only from one side. Very seldomly does it ever succeed where the left and the right flank can be attacked from both sides. So how does Morgan do this? He placed a thousand men in three successive lines, you have one row of militia sharpshooters go up front where they would fire roughly two to three shots before falling back. Why would you do this? Well, for starters, the British know that the militia are not the most seasoned of soldiers. In other words, they are men that come and go as they please. When they see the enemy coming, nine times out of ten, they run in panic and fear to the point where they don't have the must, they don't have enough uh, courage or determination that in them to want to fight um, British regulars anymore. But this is different now. Thanks to Daniel Morgan's uh, new strategical approach, as I said a moment ago, one row of militia sharpshooters come up front and fire two to three shots before falling back. The strategy is to lure the British into thinking that the militia were retreating. So the, the further the British go into the woods trying to find the um, militia, a, a, a bigger surprise awaits them. What happens? Banastray Tarleton's forces were annihilated. Nearly eight, they suffer, he and his uh, forces suffered about an 85% um, loss cash casualty. Nearly 100 dead, 229 wounded, to 600 men captured and missing versus Daniel Morgan's losing only 25 men with 124 wounded. This is what I call a very, very brilliant strategy. 
It's one thing to um, conduct warfare, or should I say irregular warfare from a uh, forest, but it's one thing to do it in a manner where you were successful enough to uh, attack the British from both right and left flanks at the same time. You send a, a row of militia sharpshooters up front, you fire a couple of rounds, then retreat, thinking that the British already know now, hey, let's just go seize upon them now and claim victory and, and get the, he- the heck out of Dodge. You know, it's one thing to go chasing the enemy in the forest. It's another thing to realize that if you, you go too far into the woods, you might not come back out alive. And that's what happened with Tarleton's men. An 85% uh, casualty rate. Not a good day for the British, to say the least. You know, Bloody Ban, or should I say old Bannister Tarleton, he was on a roll there for a while, uh, but he's experienced some defeats lately. And the first one was in late 1780 at Blackstock's Plantation up in Union, but now he's been defeated again at um, at um, in um, what is it? What did I just say here a moment ago? At um, in 1781, he got defeated at um, as I mentioned just a moment ago at um, and all that. But anyways, uh, the vic- this was a. Um, Victory at uh, Calpens, it was, pardon me, I should say. It was, uh, that was what the battle in 1781 was the victory, is it was at uh, Calpens, South Carolina. So I do apologize for not uh, telling you all right away the name of the battle, but that was in uh, Northwest uh, South Carolina, was where that battle took place. So the, basically, that victory there enabled Nathaniel Green to go further north into North Carolina for obtaining supplies and reinforcements, but Marion himself would remain in South Carolina. And it would be very safe to say that Green himself would be on the move constantly from from north and south, or let alone North, north Carolina, South Carolina border. Now here's a bonus question right here. What We're going to now move two months uh, further into 1781, around March 15th. What major battle in North Carolina took place involving Major General Nathaniel Green on March 15th of 1781? It was the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Now, why is this battle important? You would think, okay, here's another American victory. Believe it or not, it's the opposite. But here comes an even bigger twist. Well, given that British Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis and Bannister Tarleton had 2,400 fewer men versus Nathaniel Green's forces, did they still prevail? Yes, but Cornwallis's forces endured more deaths and woundings as a result of chasing Green's forces throughout North Carolina to where his men were basically spent, or I should say drained. So it's one thing to chase the enemy... But here's the problem. The further you go after your enemy, the further you have left your uh, original uh, post. So in other words, where is the British headquarters? It's not in North Carolina. It's in Charleston, South Carolina. And it's not like these men have um, cars or airplane or helicopters to get them back to Charleston. They, they pretty much are 
I'd say maybe 300 miles at best away from Charleston. So it's one thing to chase the enemy, but if you're not careful, you can chase them too far and then lose sight of where you originally started from um, in terms of headquarters because who's to say that you'll get back to where you originally started from within a, within a reasonable time frame. That's just not the way 18th century fighting works. So Cornwallis, instead of returning to South Carolina, he um, sends his forces to Wilmington, North Carolina for recuperating or recuperation purposes. Cornwallis never returned to South Carolina. So even that alone is a uh, price onto itself. I should also point out that um, there is a place in North Carolina, not far from Hickory, known as Morganton, uh, named after Daniel Morgan. Now, at the start of May 1781, um, there were a handful of forts in South Carolina that would fall into Patriot hands, being Forts Watson, Mott, Granby. And the reason I just point this out is because, you know, there again, it's easy to assume, oh, it's just the major battles that are going on. No, there have been plenty of small skirmishes, obviously thanks to Francis Marion and thanks to other men, especially the uh, men below him. They were the ones keeping all this alive. Without them, who's going um, to step up to the plate? Sure, Nathaniel Green could come in. But, thank heavens, Francis Marion already had laid some form of good groundwork that Green himself could work with. So, many of y'all are wondering, okay, the Patriots are on a roll here. Is there anything in South Carolina that the British still have um, their hands on in terms of uh, mili strategic military posts? There are two. Charleston and and a place in uh, western South Carolina known as 96. Turns out that 96 is very loyalist, whereas Snow's Island, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, was heavily uh, Whig. What's, what's unique about the siege of 96, other than the fact that it took place in western South Carolina? Well, the siege itself lasted 28 days, from May 22nd to June 18th of 1781. That's really four weeks. Well, why would a siege in this particular area last as long as it did? Well, it was centered around an earthen fortification known as the Star Fort. It was an eight-sided, star-shaped earthen redoubt protected by wall with pointed stakes, included being surrounded by ditches. This is no ordinary um, fort, I can tell you that much. So is Nathaniel Green going to pursue this? Yes. He's got a thousand troops versus um, a British leader by the name of John Kruger, who has about 550 uh, loyalists. Well, Green and his forces tried multiple strategies to capture the fort, including going as far as building a 30-foot tower. But for all their attempted solutions, the British prevailed in defeating Green's forces via a desperate assault charge led by Green, 
Luckily, Green did not lose anywhere, say, over 100 men or more. He did lose about 60 men, which, you know, to, to many of us may not seem like a lot over, uh, considering he went in with 1,000. But in the end, uh, Green was forced to uh, retreat eastward. And the siege at 96 was, the, in fact, the longest field siege throughout the war itself. So here we are in a situation where we've seen the good, and I don't, I don't know if I would say we'd seen the bad, but we saw surprises take place even in defeat. You know, yes, the British may have won at Guilford Courthouse, but they spent too much time chasing down um, Nathaniel Green's forces, that it was uh, Cornwallis, to the point where Cornwallis just gave up on wanting to even occupy South Carolina and instead go to Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, we saw um, Daniel Morgan out of nowhere come into uh, Calpens and come up with a brilliant solution, and that was to uh, have militia lined up in three rows where you would get a group of them to... Um, we call it the sharpshooters that would fire two to three shots, then fall back into place to lure the British into thinking that the militia were once again the traditional scaredy cats who couldn't do anything um, right when it came to fighting a war. So we have seen how American forces have now turned the tide to where the gray clouds have finally been lifted in South Carolina Thanks in part because we have leaders doing so many unique things. Francis Marion being the swamp fox, being as ever elusive as he has already been. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago with, um, uh, with what's-his-face, uh, Daniel Morgan, um, coming up with a strategical um, play of um, the sharpshooters um, shooting and then falling back into, um, into uh, order. Then we have um, Nathaniel Green, who, um, despite some of the uh, setbacks, he still comes out fine with uh, minimal uh, casualties. So we've covered a lot of ground, and and on the next uh, podcast episode, we're gonna um, we're gonna continue to talk about 1781, but we're gonna get to um, eventually we're gonna get to Yorktown. And the, even though Yorktown is in Virginia, but we're, but the leaders in South Carolina obviously are still impacted by what's going on for the duration of the war as a whole. But I should point out this, and and I'll mention it again, but I'll just tell you all right now, it's it, it's it's been automatically assumed that when October nineteenth of seventeen eighty one arose, when the British surrendered, that the war itself completely ended. That's not true. Uh, it would take another two years before the war itself uh, comes to an end. But even in 1781, there is still a lot of fighting going on in the South, most notably in the Carolinas. So when we uh, pick up with the next uh, podcast episode, uh, we're going to talk about a, a battle in South Carolina that would uh, prove to be one of the um, deadliest uh, battles um, one that um, does not even sometimes make it into the textbooks or let alone, um, you know, when I think of deadly battles, I often think of uh, what happened at Bunker Hill in 1775. I 
I even think about what happened at uh, Calpens, let alone. This is a place known as Utah Springs. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. I hope all of you have a great Christmas holiday. So, And wherever you go, uh, stay safe, take care, and happy holidays.